0: This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Afternoon, everybody. Today, it is October 18th. Uh, markets had some early gains. Still, still looks that way. Everything's in flux. Last Thursday was particularly crazy. There's only been a few times in the last few decades where we saw a whipsaw like that. Uh, last week of trading was definitely volatile. And coming into this week, it's been a little bit more sanguine. Uh, Tim, let's just kind of go with the market update. What's what's moving, what's shaking, why are we seeing so much volatility?
1: Yeah, the CPI print was wild, right? I mean, you had a hot print, it was hot on core. Any way you wanted to cut it, any factor you wanted to strip out, you still have a hot CPI print. Now, one thing that is happening is you are starting to see some disinflation or deflation on the good side of things, right? We all know freight rates have come down. We all know energy prices, uh, metals prices and all that have come down and that is feeding through on the good side, but there is no relief on the service side of the economy. There is still no relief on rent inflation and, and OER and on services overall, which I think are large, and this is a matter for debate, but I think it's largely driven by wages. Uh, but when you, ha- you got that hot, hot CPI print, futures were up like 1%, and then you got the CPI print, and we were down like 2.5% on the S&P, and then you started to get uh, the rumblings out of the UK the trust was just gonna completely capitulate, that they were gonna backtrack all of it, that they were gonna support the guilt market. And that really, that I guess was the tail of the volatility whip in the UK, right? UK really looking like an emerging market that couldn't deal with its debt was the tail of the whip. And once the market seemed to embrace that trust was gonna do the right thing, then everything reversed. we were back down Friday, uh, we were off a little we off a little bit yesterday and then we and then we tried to oh we were we were up yesterday and then we and then we tried to rally again today and we've kind of failed. We're gonna we're gonna whack around a little bit as we get through uh, earnings season. You know, I think it's a tough setup when everybody's bearish and, and and literally it does seem like everybody's pretty bearish. And you go into an earnings season and you get these, you know, nominal earnings prints. It's a nominal economy uh that that doesn't take you know 2023 to, to 200 on s p uh earnings you're still around 230 you know you could rally uh so it's a tough market to be positioned and i i think the smart thing that most people could do is p- to be really defensive here as we go through this this earnings season there's no reason to be taking big shots when volatility in equity markets and in bond markets are this high
0: yeah bloomberg just came out with their new recessionary outlook uh Two economists in particular, Anna Wong and Eliza Winger forecasted a 100% recession um, coming into 2023. That is by far, you can't be more bearish than that. Obviously, there's a separate uh, Bloomberg uh, forecast with 42 economists, which they moved it up to 60 from 50. You have Goldman Sachs' CEO, David Solomon. Um, on Tuesday, really said that the economy would be in a recession. And you saw the same thing from J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon has said as much over the last couple of days as well. Uh, this is obviously not new, but it's kind of all coming in in a flurry. What should we make of Bloomberg and Jamie and, and David? Um, you know, just all their comments and forecasts over the last couple of days.
1: Yeah, it's like I said. Every everybody seems to be bearish. I mean, 100% likelihood seems a little bit um, unrealistic. It's, <laughs> it's 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 it's. Sort of, look, when you pull all the monetary support and you and you have this much draining of liquidity, when you're past annualizing all that insane level of fiscal support, uh, and you have a housing market that is really truly rolling over. I mean, we got the NEHB this morning uh and you're ripping into new lows again for the housing market that's the national association of home builders it's just hard to be optimistic on the housing side and i'm a big believer that housing really really matters because the knock-on effects the wealth effects of housing uh, i'm always reminded uh and this is dated but the stat used to be that new housing starts were 95 percent correlated with the trend on uh light pickups on, on on light trucks uh, it just, and that stat always reminds me of how important housing is to the overall economy and how we think about wealth. Now, it's not going to be 2008. I think 65% of Americans with mortgages have 30 year fixed mortgages. That puts us in a much better position than the rest of the world. Um, but, you know, you're starting to see orders on the ISM side, uh, on the order front, you're below 50. So yeah, with the trend on housing, with the trend on orders, uh, with all of the stimulus being pulled and reversed and and some level of QT, it's hard to imagine that we don't go into a recession.
0: I mean, when certainly from the supply side, we've seen things slow down, right? I mean, consumer spending was flat in September. Um, Retail and food services were a little changed, you know, from August to September. And that was below Dow Jones's estimate. So things have been cooling off on a consumer spending supply. And then obviously we'll get into supply constraints in a little bit. But when we're looking at shipping snarls and chip delivery, uh, that's all kind of slowed down as well, too.
1: Yeah, it's just slow. It's, it, it's slowing slowly, right? I mean, BAML was out um, earlier this week with earnings. And, um, you know, they talked about how strong balance sheets for their consumers still are. So you still have some of this... Excess savings. You still have an environment where we have three and a half percent unemployment and six plus percent nominal wage growth. Uh, that's you know that that's an environment where people are going to um, uh, to spend money. But things are slowing. You see it at restaurants. You see you know, traffic at restaurants starting to slow, uh, and lots of in, other indicators in kind of the leisure area. Uh, but I think it is just going to take a while because people have jobs there's a little bit of wage growth even if it's even if it's negative on a real basis though as energy comes down maybe it's not as negative um and you have a bunch of savings still to work off of so uh, that's why i also think that that you know you're going to see this this earning season where you've got something like 7 8% nominal growth still look pretty good it's just going to be a slow decline
0: Yeah, I mean, and then um, snarls have seemed to pick up in terms of shipping. We saw container freight rates. They were at records in the pandemic. Um, Those have gone down quite a bit, Uh, especially between U.S. and Asia. And a lot of that has to do with China's slowdown, right? So slowdown in China has allowed people to keep up with orders and to end some of these bottlenecks.
1: Right. Well, you also got got into a situation where you got on the retailer side, you got into way excess inventories. Mm-hmm. So it just so now you stop ordering or you 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 minimize your ordering and that just takes pressure off of it as well. Uh, and then you you I'm sure you had some level of the supply response from a ship from the shippers where you just had you you created some more capacity. So the the you know that it's the way it always goes right. You get to total exuberance. You get to excess tightness. Supply comes on. As soon as the supply comes on, at the same time, demand falls apart. You know, look at the lumber market, right? You -hmm. couldn't get lumber. And lumber has absolutely collapsed. So you just get this overordering, double ordering, and the same thing in chips. Now, we've got the geopolitical issues in chips. But the same thing that's always existed in, in semiconductors and why semiconductor cycles have always been so violent. Because you get double ordering, double ordering, I can't get my stuff, to holy shit, I got too much stuff as demand is falling off. And that is kind of a microcosm of I think what has happened overall that has taken freight rates down so much.
0: Yeah and in terms of chips I mean we saw that with Intel we saw that with micro devices delivery times were down by four days in September and that's been the biggest drop of years so things are definitely easing on that front you know. Absolutely. Yeah
1: yeah no doubt no doubt and they're going to continue to I can't imagine semi-earnings look pretty I mean, we've already seen some of the pre-announcements, so we know they're not going to look pretty,
0: but yeah. Yeah, and that's been the cause for a lot of the recent tech sell-offs, right? It's been yeah. chip-related. Right. Um, well, Bernanke, the Swedes, gave him the Nobel uh, Prize in economics. It was him and a couple other bankers, Diamond and Dibberg. Uh I didn't know who they were until reading it, um, but I think they were real wonks, wonks. Uh, Bernanke, obviously the most well-known. Um, real world experience, certainly uh, coming into the housing bubble and, and that recession. And he's had no shortage of works on how banks should be responsive. Um, kind of contrary to a lot of stuff Milton Friedman said in the past. Uh, you know, so there's a lot to make of his legacy. Uh, there's people who think we still are very much in his era, uh, and some of the stuff that he instituted is still ramifications of today uh, for good and bad. What do you make of Bernanke and what do you make of this uh, recent award?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 was, I was running money during that time. It was scary as hell. Uh, I thought I was bearish enough and it turned out I wasn't bearish enough. I mean, almost nobody was bearish enough, you know. You knew housing was gonna collapse, but I didn't have any understanding of the excess leverage that existed inside Lehman Brothers and the other banks. And clearly those banks, Dick Fold, everybody loved Dick Fold. Everybody was like, he is the greatest CEO ever. And then he blew himself up. Um, so that was those were wild, scary times. And I, I, I think that in the end, that the people who were so maligned, like Geithner um, and, uh, and and Bernanke probably do deserve a lot of credit for the way that they handled it. You know, what's super interesting is they basically bailed out the banks. And what you saw in this in, in the pandemic was a very different policy, which was, let's just, let's just bail out the consumer directly. And what you saw was how much, how the velocity of money was so fast when you give people money directly. So look, I, I think in the end, Bernanke did the right thing uh, in bailing out the banks, but I do think that we've learned from the more recent pandemic crisis that if you really wanna stimulate the economy very, very quickly, if you wanna help people Um, The best way is to send money directly. Now, we sent too much money directly and PPP was overdone. But I think that is one of the lessons that we've learned since Bernanke. I think the one issue that people have with Bernanke is the same issue that people had with Greenspan and that they have with Powell, which is you guys got all the smart economists. You got the biggest econometric model in the world and you guys can't forecast recessions? And more importantly, you guys can't see the asset bubbles. Like remember Greenspan saying that we just don't have an ability to, to see an asset bubble. Well, when you had stocks with, you remember the days in 2000, when you had, you know, the the NASDAQ went to 5,000. And, and you know, you had all these companies trading at hundreds of, of times of revenues, uh, Sycamore and Akamai were the crazy names back then. It was nonsense and and Greenspan should have been able to recognize that. The same thing was true with Bernanke. You should have been able to see when housekeepers buying houses for $400,000 with nothing down in Florida, that you probably had an asset bubble on your hand. And the same goes for Powell now, like how how is it possible that the Fed was still buying mortgage-backed securities? When the housing market was incredibly hot, when it was when we were going through a speculative boom, when you were going through valuations uh, of of kind of house prices to income levels that were surpassing two thousand and eight. And I think that's the issue that people have with Bernanke, and it's the same issue that people have with Powell. How is it possible that these these central bankers cannot be more anticipatory, how they can't see what me, kind of the average guy observer on the street, can see which is that this is an asset bubble and you guys are still inflating it. Uh, so I'm, sorry for that diatribe, but I I think that it is. I, I think the lasting negative for Bernanke is the same thing for Powell. Central bankers have got to do a better job of forecasting. What is the point of having these econometric models and all of these economists if you're not going to be able to do any forecasting?
0: Yeah, you talk about asset bubbles. I remember like. A- 2015, there was a sales presentation called Dow 30,000 that was used in the yeah, industry. It's like, do you think Dow will hit 30,000? And, you know, in brokers, and the expected response was no way. Well, I mean, not only did it hit 30,000, it's sitting at 30,000 right now, even after the <laughs> sell off. Uh, so I think about that a lot, um, just how wild the last few years have been, uh, yeah. really since yeah. 2013, but like the last three or four in particular. But yeah.
1: I mean, you know, it, it it is the world of the Fed put, right? And it And it does go back all the way to Bernanke, that this belief that you're always going to have the Fed put, that if stuff gets hairy enough, that if there are enough dislocations, if valuation comes down enough, the Fed's going to be there. And it's the reason why in the pandemic, we had the huge fiscal response and the huge monetary response that we did. But once because inflation was dead, once inflation isn't dead, you don't have a Fed put and inflation is not dead right now. So there's no Fed put. And it's the reason, it's one of the reasons why, you know, maybe the market rallies through earnings and so on and so forth. But the long-term view for me, just to repeat myself again, is that the wage inflation and the energy inflation that is it, it, that now exists is not going to go away easily. And as we get to the other side of this imminent recession, that those fears of wage inflation, of having a worker shortage and having an underinvestment in energy and the need to spend money on a more green agenda, uh, they're gonna pop right up to the boil again as soon as we start to come out of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: when you look at in terms of spending, I've seen, obviously you've seen it in Europe with solar and then uh, a lot more on nuclear, um, in terms of wages, yeah, we're right now at negative 1.5 or whatever real GD, uh real wage growth but um but yeah I and mean, we'll see how the slowdown affects that
1: yeah well, you, the Atlanta wage growth uh tracker finally came off the peak number it was six seven printed another six seven now it's at six five I just disagree with the argument that it is proof that uh because wages are negative in real terms that there isn't a wage uh price spiral going on. I do think that companies are raising prices ahead of uh how much wage pressure that they're seeing and they're staying ahead of it. I don't think that that's proof that there isn't a wage price spiral going on because I do think there is. You just you you see it in the street, you see it every day as you talk to people who complain about I can't hire workers and that's still going on today. You
0: have had the largest unionization efforts in decades. Um, And not only that, but the public is very much supporting unions in a way they haven't in decades as well. Uh, that's so that's an definitely
1: important point.
0: Yeah, that's changed the dynamic. I think quite right? a bit.
1: Right, organized uh, labor was dead. Organized labor was dead, and mm-hmm. now you've got organized labor in service industries. Now you have organized la- labor in the American South, like organized labor is back. And I I think in a very real way, and I think that is one of the key reasons why I think you are going to continue to see uh, some wage pressure. Wages are going to come down in a recession. They always do. Inflation always comes down in a recession. The Fed's going to win, but thinking out a little bit longer term, organized labor ain't going away.
0: No, no, I don't think so. Um, And it's kind of contrary to what everyone said about robotics and AI and everything else, uh, people are still clearly needed and, and people, especially in the last couple of years of the pandemic, realized how valuable they were to society um, in ways that they might not have thought, like how much power labor might have over capital right now. It's yeah. just interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, look, investment in your capital, maybe uh, in, in robotics and things like that, that drives growth that engenders the need for more jobs. That's how economies want to get out of low class, uh, I mean, you know, sort of always being stuck in having just kind of low wage jobs. You invest in capital, you grow your economy, and that necessitates more jobs and more higher wage jobs. It's the way uh, it's supposed to work.
0: Ideally, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's what I got, Tim. Do you think we overlooked anything this week? Anything coming well, up we, that's exciting?
1: You me? know, we can't be talking right now about the global economy without talking about Xi. Uh, you know, he 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 has become the essentially the the new emperor of China. And what has been interesting is how little they've talked about the economy uh, through this um, through this meeting that they're having that that goes through this week. Uh, because they are, they do not have an answer on what to do for the housing crisis uh, that they've got. They are not, there is, I just, I, I've argued this for a long time. Once confidence is lost, once the general population has lost confidence that you can just buy a house and make money, you know, you once you can't flip an empty piece of real estate for a higher value to the greater fool, the whole thing comes unwound. And I think that that's, what you're seeing right now, and I think it makes G all the more dangerous. Uh, you saw the comments on Taiwan this week; and they are not backing off Taiwan in any way. As a matter of fact, Tony Blinken, um, uh, who's kind of uh, Biden's right-hand man for international affairs, raised the rhetoric again and said, "Look, their time frame on Taiwan is doing nothing but moving forward." And and I do think, as we talk about deglobalization, deglobalization is one of those factors that we talk about for why we think we're in a long-term secular inflationary environment. Export controls like we've conceived with the uh with the with with the chips uh rules from the commerce department that we are not going to send intellectual property to China, uh, especially on the uh, semiconductor man- manufacturing equipment side, the AMATs, the ASMLs of the world, um, there's going to be a response to that uh and, and china is gonna respond in any way that they think that they can hurt the US economy. So these things just keep building on one another. These kind of export controls, uh that's what deglobalization is. Um and I think that you know we're in a we a scary moment from from that standpoint.
0: Yeah she's also had some interesting comments saying that growth wasn't everything to the Chinese population. It was just right. really um The reason why I think everyone's – the CCP exists as a one-party state the way it does is because it's lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the last three decades. And this guy's arguably has the worst economic performance since Mao. So (laughs) um, people put up with the party because it's given them tremendous results over the 40 years. And so, I I mean, that's totally off-base in my opinion, Uh, and we'll see how people respond. But
1: I think what people are recognizing is Xi is really good at consolidating power. He may not actually be that good at helping China, you know, grow its economy and do the things the governments are supposed to do uh, for their people. It just, you know, it, you've you've got negative workforce growth in China. Like it's happening. The demographic disaster of China is upon us. And you know, you look at Japan. The only way Japan has been able to to generate with a negative work, workforce growth issue. The only way they've been able to, po- to create ge- positive GDP is through very high productivities. Pro- productivity. One of the ways they were able to generate such high productivity is to use more cheap Chinese labor over the last right. 40 years. Well, all of that is over. So China's in a position where I don't see where the productivity growth comes from. Now, look, you never want a short innovation, right? We're going to have innovation of some kind that gives us productivity. But man, I, I don't really see where it's gonna come from. This whole idea that artificial intelligence and machine learning were gonna drive these huge, you know, Kathy Wood talking about these nonsensical productivity numbers, I just don't see it, you know, especially when you're comparing to the kind of productivity generators that we've had, like having iPhones and, and having the internet and having email, all those things that allow us to work at 10 o'clock at night or four o'clock on Sunday, whatever, you know? Like, I just, I don't see what brings the kind of productivity uh, acceleration that we need to see for a country like China to actually grow.
0: That sounds good, Tim. Uh, Thanks for your time this week. And uh, for all our listeners and subscribers, uh, thank you as well. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the contents. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.